How'd you like that? As always, great session with you, man, buddy. <laughs> we had on Pete Soderling today of Data Council, and we had a very thoughtful session about open source, starting companies around it, starting companies around communities, especially for engineers. Is that fair yeah. to say, Demetrios? Yeah, and so for those who do not know who Pete is, he runs the Data Council. You probably heard about that event that they had uh, about a week ago, a week and a half ago in Austin in real life. It's all kinds of data practitioners that went there. I think he said over 600 people were at the event, which is awesome. I know a few people who went and they loved it. And uh, it's funny he mentioned that there was a lot of VCs that were there because a few people that I saw on Twitter that were going were VCs. And then they said like, oh, I'm playing poker making connections at the data council. <laughs> so that that's awesome to see. I mean, that's funny. key takeaways that you had, I'll give you mine in a second. So I would say mine was definitely his point about no code, which mm. I, which will, I will leave to the end uh, for all you listeners out there to listen to. Uh, but uh, let's just say Pete had some interesting things to say about no code and whether it is really the panacea that a lot of people are marketing it as. And then the other thing I would say is just how he gave a very thoughtful perspective on whether open source or closed source is the right kind of business to build, how the how the revenues flow, and if you're an engineer or a founder thinking about either business model, what some of the considerations are before you just jump in to one of them. And I thought 100%. that was a really, really great uh, takeaway from, from his... Um, from him yeah, joining us. What about you? Kind of riding the curtails of that last point you made, I think for me, a huge takeaway was when he talked about how if you are trying to start a movement, what you are looking at is doing some sales and marketing, just not over mm -hmm. the top, not really looking at it as sales and marketing, but at the end of the day, what you're doing is sales and marketing. So be aware of that. Don't feel slimy or dirty if you're doing it, but also make sure that you aren't doing it too much. Like it's a, a toned down version of sales and marketing as you're creating the foundations for a community and then communicating your vision as yes. if, let's say I just start an open source project tomorrow you want to see, does my vision resonate with people? And that is like your sandbox that you get to play in and see if there's something there. Does this have legs? And if it does, you can create a full-fledged company out of it. So the debate that we had around whether or not your open source project should be turned into a full-fledged project or a full-fledged company, I should say, that was spot on. Yep. And now let's get into Pete. Wait, wait, wait. I got one last that. thing before I, I oh, got to okay. <laughs> speaking of sales and marketing, dude, I got all kinds of stuff I want to talk about. Give me a break here. All right, no, yeah. There's a few things right. that a few updates that I want to say. We're doing all kinds of in-person meetups these days. Last yes, week I was we in are. Berlin. We did in-person there. This week we've got 80 people signed up to go to the Amsterdam in-person meetup. That is going to be awesome. I... Hopefully we'll be able to make it unless I get stuck in a coffee shop or get lost in Amsterdam because, you know, uh, that happens sometimes <laughs> and, or run over by a bike <laughs> after coming from True. the coffee shop. Anyway, if you want to do some cool stuff around where you're at, 
in person for the MLOps community meetups, we've got all kinds of resources that we can throw at it. So get in touch. Let's make it happen. There's also other yeah. really cool things that we're doing in the community virtual. And so if you want to help out with stuff in the community, we also always need help. Just let us know what you would like to be doing and I can give you some suggestions even. But now let's jump into it. Let's talk with none other than Pete. Sutteran. Sutteran. <laughs> <laughs> great to have you here and i want to know all about data cancel council i missed out i didn't get the chance to go to austin but everyone i talked to they loved it how are you just came off of it so i'm sure you're still vibing from it how you feeling what are some top takeaways give us the lowdown yeah, yeah um it was an amazing event um to be totally honest we were all excited about um how data council blew up this year and i think part of that was um people, you know, the overall interest in the community around data-oriented tooling, um, data systems, new open source projects coming out. Um, part of it was sort of post-pandemic excitement and folks getting together IRL for the first time. Um, so we had 600 people uh, together in Austin, Texas last week um, for the first data council since the pandemic. And yeah, we're definitely still basking in the glow of, you know, a lot of activity on Twitter, um, a lot of follow-up blog posts, People were truly excited to see each other, hugging each other, huge smiles on their face, um, lots of great technical content. So, so cool. we, we couldn't have been more thrilled with uh, how it turned out. Do you have a most surprising piece of content, whether that was a talk or uh, someone that you met that wrote a blog post afterwards that has come from it? Well, there was a lot of buzz around all the investors that happened to show up at Data Council this year. And this is definitely a very new thing in our community. Um, not that there always haven't been, um, sort of hasn't been that interest. And I think capital helps the startup community, um, you know, really move forward. So it wasn't entirely surprising to me, but I think it was the first glimpse that a lot of folks had into how this data ecosystem is growing and expanding and also what's fueling it and and why why it's growing. So that was an interesting little wrinkle that, um, some folks have um, enjoyed sounding off on, as as you imagine, technical folks, um, you know, like us are are want to do. So that's awesome. Um, I'm thrilled to have in person events back. I've been spending time with people in person. We've been having MLOps community meetups, so mm. I can only imagine the energy that must have been present in Austin for everybody to finally see each other after a long time. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of intro, just in terms of like. You know, you mentioned some investors, you mentioned some engineers. Who are the people that are in the data council community? At the MLOps community, we like to frame ourselves as practitioners of production ML that learn and share best practices. That's what we do. Can you tell us a little bit about data council and, and who's in it and, and who came out? Yeah, for sure. So so data council started in 2013, um, all the way back then as a meetup inside the Spotify office in New York City. Um, it was wow. a meetup that that I started. At, we were working on a on a project with Spotify um, to help them hire more machine learning engineers. And what we realized at the time was that um, this sort of notion of data engineering generally um, just was barely recognized in the community. And you know, it was the early days of of that notion. And so, probably only Facebook or maybe Google had you know such a concept of a of a data engineer as uh, on a job title. Um, so we sort of, you know, claimed that term and just wanted to turn community around it to figure out 
well, who are these mystical data engineers? Where do they come from? What do they do um, during their, their daily routine? Like, um, you know, how can we learn from each other and sort of defining and, and moving this, this notion forward? Um, so that was the data engineering meetup series. And by 2015, that had actually sort of hit a, hit a nerve um, amongst the community. And not only did we have data engineers coming together, kind of comparing notes and trying to figure out like if they were really data engineers and 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 or how how they could become data engineers if they wanted to get into the field, but then we had data scientists come, and we had data analysts come, and we had AI researchers come, and all these folks sort of basically the the fundamental interest was they wanted to learn how to work together better with their adjacent peers at every layer of the stack. So um, we sort of grew up from this data engineering focused thing to a much more full stack. Um, kind of a conference that we launched in 2015, which covered data infrastructure, data engineering, um, science and models, analytics, and then even, as I mentioned, AI research or AI products. And so Data Council sort of transformed into a full stack data-oriented event. So um, now we sort of encompass all those layers of the cake and, um, and, and Austin was a great view into sort of that cross-section of all those different types of disciplines who wanted to get together. So there's something interesting that has happened since and I love hearing about your journey and just tracking it because you created this community and now you were talking about investors. Uh, funny you should say that because now you're an investor yourself mm -hmm. and you have told me, we've spoken before, uh, and you have a really cool mission statement about what you want to do with investing and maybe you can go into that a little bit for us real fast. Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I'm a ex-engineer. Um, turned founder. I started my first company in 2003 in New York City. I started two companies as an engineer in New York City before 2010. And then I started two companies in San Francisco after 2010. Wow. Um, and all the companies that I've started have always had other engineers as the end user or the customer. So in a sense, I was like an engineer building tools or building communities or building stuff for other engineers. Mm -hmm. um, so that's always been my personal mission, um, not just to sort of make the world a better place for other engineers, but then also like myself to support other engineers in starting companies. And so as I've sort of um, traversed through my career, uh, you know, one of my one of my life goals is to help a thousand other engineers start companies. And part of that um, was sort of sown in the seeds of data council, because I knew that it wasn't just about data tooling and the future of data and data engineering and whatnot. It was that we had this community that was sort of birthing a lot of interesting startups like DBT and, you know, we saw Snowflake there in the early days and Palantir wow. and other amazing companies, great expectations. Um, so I think, you know, as I started to get more confident putting those two things together, I realized that um, it made most sense for leverage from my perspective to add capital into that mix and to be a engineer sort of founder investor helping other engineers start companies and in my case it just happened to be in the data space excellent so as you look at the companies that are coming through these days i always love talking to investors about their feel on the environment what they look at when the companies that they're basically evaluating deals on what is it that is important to you right now? Where do you think there are gaps in the market? And how or who do you think is primed to solve those? Yeah, well, we're, 
we're definitely seeing an explosion of interest across this ecosystem. Um, the public market valuations of companies like Snowflake, the private market value, uh, value uh, valuations of companies like Databricks, and then everyone sort of that flows down 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 under those. Um, you know, we're just seeing an explosion of interest, and I think that that's justified because the world is producing um, massive amounts of data and increasing in, in, increasing volumes every year, and as sensors come online and um, you know medical types of data and um, transactional data and, and social data continues to explode. And uh, I think we're starting to see that every company wants to become a data-driven company, not just the tech companies that are in the Bay Area. So I think all of these things sort of catalyze this massive interest and increase in volume of data itself, which drives needs for um, data storage and analytical systems and machine learning systems. and it's also obviously driving us to sort of apply best practices of software engineering into the data world. Hence, you know, what we learned about DevOps um, 15 years ago, now we call ML ops. And that's sort of the, the fusion of those two things. So I think we're all in this, in this world and we understand these basic things. Um, I guess from the macro perspective, you know, we've seen a lot of investors want to invest in point solutions. So instead of having one platform to rule them all, you know, which feels um, uh, just sort of far too massive and monolithic um, in the same way that we've adopted microservices in our software engineering, we've tended to want to invest in companies that are sort of point solutions and doing one thing along that value chain, whether it's the ETL analytics stack or the, whether it's the ML op stack, um, doing like one thing well. And so now we're at this point where we see actually four or five competing best of breed solutions in every category. Um, and this exists across both of those, um, those stacks that I mentioned, um, ETL as well as ML. Um, so I think that, you know, there's definitely gonna be consolidation amongst those small players and point solutions that are covering each sort of micro section of the stack. But we also may start to see, and I think we already are seeing some pendulum swing where um, we will see sort of more homogenous monolithic platforms, end-to-end -end platforms that are adopted by some companies because they can't hire the best of breed engineers that are required to put together and stitch together all these various pieces and tools of the stack. So I think those are some of the macro trends that we're seeing. Um, hard to say exactly how that's going to play out, but that's uh, those are just some, some basic insights that I have. Okay, so before we jump into community building for open source and the whole, should I start a company? conversation. Mm -hmm. I want to hear the truth from you. Are there any companies that you wish you would have gotten in on now? Or what is the one company that you're kicking yourself because you did not invest in? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, definitely every investor, you know, has their, their wish list or their, their, their didn't hit list. And, um, I guess, like I said, for me, you know, from the earliest days of Data Council, we had such amazing companies there, and I, I mentioned several of them. Um, I think in, in most of those years, I was not actually actively investing, and it took me a while to sort of warm up to that. The one that sort of came into the picture just around the time that I was starting to invest, but was still just a touch early, was DBT. And it was interesting how DBT was so thoroughly misunderstood in our community when they first showed up in 2017, 
because we were we considered ourselves a bunch of like hard carrying data engineers. And um, if you weren't using Kafka, and if you weren't using some columnar data store of some kind, and if you weren't using some advanced engineering magic, um, like what what was someone going to use this sort of script kitty like data transformation? you know, thing that just didn't really seem to fit into the, the tool chain of the modern data engineer. And of course, you know, DBT became successful in sort of carving out space amongst the analytics engineering category and sort of making a, a new role, you know, for themselves in their tool that they've done very successfully. But I think they're probably like the, the biggest rocket ship um, that sort of overlaps, you know, partially overlaps some of my investing, but wasn't a company that we actually um, participated in supporting. So I, yeah, I love hearing that. Vishnu, you got some? Sorry, I cut you off. Well, I was going to say, it's funny that you bring up DBT in this context because I was in, I was, I was in school in Philly at the time, right? And I was, mm. I was in university and I remember hearing about a company called Fishtown Analytics because they were, they were generally hiring, hiring in the Philly area around the time that I was looking for internships and jobs. And mm -hmm. when you looked at Fishtown, it was very it was very easy in those days to kind of really frankly dismiss it as a company that was just doing one-off analytics jobs or whatever in a geography that we didn't traditionally associate with groundbreaking data innovation, right? Mm -hmm. I certainly remember like the time, the name Fishtown Analytics itself, right? It's a very Philly name. Fishtown is a part is a, is a neighborhood in Philly. So it's mm -hmm. funny that you bring it up because I certainly made the same mistake, you know, kind of thinking, oh yeah, well whatever open source projects these folks must be doing, it must not be applicable to the high growth startup environment. It must not be applicable to the kinds of places that we want uh, these tools to be used. Um, and, you know, that example, it certainly makes me think about sometimes what are, where are we repeating that same mistake, you know, in, in the data world, right? Where are we like fundamentally like discounting potentially game changing ideas, either because of who or where they're made. Um, I don't know how you feel about it as a community builder and how you try to manage that sort of, um, you could say, I don't want to call it as strong a stigma, but part of community is bringing everyone together. How do you do it on an even playing field where everyone gets an opportunity to talk about what their problems are and what their solutions might be? Yeah. And how do you validate that there's a market desire or demand for a tool that you're building? And we can get into this, you know, in the, in sort of the startup section um, that I know you want to discuss more, but <laughs> you know, um, uh, founders are trained to believe that investors will not invest in their consulting company. And that is true. Mm. Um, VC investors will not. However, um, the, 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 the analog for me was that Fishtown started off um, using DBT on behalf of their consulting clients. And they sort of like engineered it or manufactured it through those projects. They found super, it's super useful for the consulting projects that they did. And it helped them scale in ways that, um, you know, perhaps they were surprised at. Um, in a similar way, you know, in my world, um, determined not to miss the same insight again, I invested in Superconductive, which is Great Expectations. Great Expectations mm -hmm. started off as a consulting company, little yeah, known, mm -hmm. doing um, sort of um, data work in the medical um, domain, in the healthcare domain. And um, they also sort of grew Great Expectations out of consulting work that they had done. So I think that um, if you start to pay attention to these patterns, the nuance of these patterns, even though consulting companies are not investable from a venture standpoint, um, there are tools that can fall out of these opportunities that are sort of battle tested, um, you know, proved by the market um, and can sort of show um, demand, um, you know, for this kind of tech. And that's a that's a 
you know, it's not, it, it doesn't give the answer as to like, what's the specific tool I should build as a consultant, but it gives you the sense that if you have a consulting platform, you might be able to step into a process that on the end sort of outputs a tool that's actually useful, not just to you, but um, a broader section of the data engineering world. I think that's a, it's a fascinating story to hear. I didn't realize that superconductive was actually in the healthcare space. It makes a lot more sense now why they mm -hmm. focus so much on data quality, uh, given my experience with data quality and healthcare. And I think this presents a nice opportunity for us. Having seen that model, you know, in, in superconductive and in Fishtown, which became DBT, um, and also the model of, you know, I think there's another model here of entrepreneurs who might have been at big tech companies, figure out some kind of open source innovation, like platform level innovation, and then bring it out of the company. You know, I'm thinking about things like the Tekton team coming out of Uber or mm -hmm. the flight team coming out of Lyft, right? Like, you know, what are some of the paths that you recommend to engineers who may be interested in starting a company and who are kind of saying, hey, I think I have some sort of expertise at the cutting edge of the data and machine learning field. How mm -hmm. can I translate that into a realistic path to becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, you have to believe that there's some something generalizable there, but actually it starts one step earlier, I believe. And this is why teams coming out of large tech companies, especially in the Bay Area, who have solved some data problem at scale are the darlings of the VC world right now. Um, it's because the, the notion is that these teams leave their big com company situation and they walk away with some key insight um, that is the, the inception sort of, you know, groundbreaking truth, the origin story of that company. And, and I think this is meaningful. Um, I, I don't think it's only meaningful for infrastructure companies that come out of larger tech companies, but I think for every engineer founder, for every founder that exists, like my goal in talking to, to the founder is to really understand deeply what key insight do you have that actually justifies the, the reason for your entire company. And, that, and that's called the essence of the company. And especially because I'm a pre-seed and seed stage investor, I talk to engineers um, and want to be the first check-in even before no one else has said yes. Um, I have to get to that point where I believe that that engineer has some key insight that almost always comes from their personal experience. This is not an insight that you can manufacture easily, or if you do, it just doesn't ring true. And so I think that's the essence to really get to when judging your own ideas and um, and, and whether or not you feel like you have some some key key insight, some key idea that 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 um, deserves a company or a, a product around it. The way I've heard that frame before is as the Peter Thiel question, you know, where it's once one thing you believe that others don't, mm -hmm. and it, it could be mm -hmm. a, it could be a, Thiel calls it a secret. It could be mm -hmm. you know something contrary and something like that. But that has to be at the core of of what you know, what you believe to be true and why you believe that there's an opportunity to rectify the issue and then create a very valuable organization product. Uh, I always like that framing a lot uh, and uh, recommend people read zero to one if they're interested in things like this, like how to think like an entrepreneur, like a founder on, on these yeah. topics. I know Absolutely. Demetrius had something to say. Hopefully I, to to I don't get crucified for asking this, but I do have to bring it up. And I'm not really worried about the superconductive or great expectations mob, but I know DBT enthusiasts can be very enthusiastic. Luckily, I'm not sure how many 
actual DBT enthusiasts listen to this podcast. Uh, but I wonder from your perspective as an investor and you're looking at the viability and at the end of the day, you want to make money as an investor and superconductive and DBT are huge communities and they are like DBT, especially it's ubiquitous within that space that they've etched out for mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. But then you really look at like, where can they really make money out of this? Mm -hmm. And so that's the real question. Mm -hmm. And a lot of investors obviously think they can because the, the valuation is huge. But what so I wonder is like, how, what, what were you going to say, Vishnu? I was going to say like, what is it? 4 billion now or something like yeah, that? It's, you know, it's outrageous. It's yeah. huge. And so there's a lot of people betting on them being able to, uh, but is the business model there yet? And you as an investor looking at those kind of things, like what, what are the questions that go on in your head? Yeah. So I, I totally, it's a amazing, you know, question. It's, it's totally fair. Right. Um, I don't think any engineer founder launching a tooling company, you know, should, should sort of ignore um, the reality of, the open source go-to-market versus a, a commercial go-to-market. Um, the revenues flow completely differently in those two those two kinds of, of areas. I also think that companies who try and merge those two together prematurely and sort of dabble in both also don't succeed, which is why we see this very stark contrast between um, you know the the superconductors or DBTs of the world um, and other commercial companies who chose not mm -hmm. to go open source right out of the gate. I, I don't think it's generally wise to try and sort of muddle the two, because I think that leads to a lot of confusion oh, amongst founders point. and strategies and, um, and, and sort of the benefit that you'll get from, from that, that kind of an approach. Um, so it does sort of leave this big chasm across companies who are highly valued only because of community traffic. I mean, look at um, Airbyte is another example in that space. Um, so, you know, I, I think founders actually need to understand the difference between these two options. And, um, the reason that I think the open source companies are still valued so highly, um, or at least the, the ones that are perceived to be high quality, is that they've actually found a meaningful wedge like in the tool chain. So if you, if you have a tool that engineers are willing to use like day in, day out, and you've sort of created a space for yourself, um, you know, in DBT's case, in the analytics workflow, um, the presumption is that you'll be able to figure out some sort of way to monetize that surface area across all of that developer interest, not to mention, you know, the other sort of free benefits you get from the open source adoption, other things. Now, of course, there's always the question of how do you convert purely open source users over some like dip into actually commercial paying customers. And that's not always as obvious um, as one would hope or think. So, you know, there are questions, which are, are your open source users actually the people who are going to end up paying for your product in the end? And if you have a split user base there, that can be a very, very hard hurdle to cross. And companies like Docker have also gone through this, right? So um, there's lots of lessons to be learned, not just in the data world, but in other sort of open, so open source infrastructure tooling companies um, that can be helpful guides to us in some of these questions. But, but they're, they're the perfect questions to be asking, and, and we should all be asking them as a community. I think that was a, a very instructive answer in terms of its scope. I think 
people and I know I will be listening to it very like a number of times to actually get, you know, all that you packed into there. So kudos to you for that and for having that level of understanding about how these business models and organizations run. I think one of the questions I have to you as like a preeminent community builder in the space, it's been around for a while, right? 2013, you know, that tracks to like, you know, when, when, when Slack is now a natural community space, Discord is now a natural community space for people. So like people were not doing, you know, building communities on those platforms before, right? The, the very notion of how people build platforms has changed a lot in the, in the, in the last 10 years. And my question to you is, hey, I am a founder or an engineer with an open source project. I believe I have a real insight about the way that a process in the engineering world could be done better with my tool. I might not be ready yet to start a business, but I want to build a community of people, of like-minded people who really want to build with me, grow with me, and get my insight out to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things I should do and what are some of the things I should avoid? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think that um, there, there's a lot that goes into like baking and promoting a successful open source project, right? I think that early in my career as a software engineer, I just sort of assumed that open source was just purely community driven and sort of magically appeared. And um, the, the no, this notion of developer evangelism, um, you know, I think I didn't really understand how that actually went into a, making a successful open source project. And so there's this aspect of sales and marketing that is just a general thing that us engineers don't like generally. We don't like to be self-promotional. We don't like to be overly promotional. We don't like salespeople. Like there, there's just this, you know, th this is a well-trodden like trope, right? We, we yeah. understand these things. Um, I think when it comes to building a successful open source project, you know, we need to realize that open source and sort of community development at least requires some promotion. And so I think we have to figure out how do we promote our product? That is, how do we get more people to discover it, understand its value? Oh, understanding its value, like explaining it in bullet points or pictures? Well, that kind of sounds like marketing, right? So there's, there's all of these sort of like gentle sales and marketing promotional things that I think we have to step into as a successful open source project leader to figure out how to rally people around the vision and the purpose. We have to explain the vision and the purpose of our community publicly. That could be blog posts and that could be content marketing, but these are sort of marketing style activities. And so I think that the most successful open source projects realize this and they know how to communicate values across their constituents and sort of build that community. And honestly, like, I think those are, those are that's a great on-ramp to sort of determining if you want to become a startup founder, because as a startup founder, mm. you're going to have to do that kind of promotion and marketing and communicating and explaining and even selling in some cases and in most cases. Um, so I think that those are sort of sets you on that path uh, to determine perhaps if you want to convert that from a, you know, a successful open source project to an actual company um, somewhere down the road. I like that idea of sales and marketing, but very toned down. It's not like you're mm -hmm. going to be cold calling anyone. Mm -hmm. But you are trying to make sure that does this have traction and validate your assumptions, validate mm -hmm. if this tool that is useful for you is also useful for other people, and then communicate the vision, see if people can get on board with that vision and see if there is a community to be had around that vision. And so it's like a, it's basically like the MVP of 
communities or MVC, we could call it mm -hmm. the minimal viable community that you can have. And then you start rolling from there. Uh, so I have one last question for you that I wanted to get out. And it is really along the lines of you right now as an investor in this space and really trying to be your you're the first check-in most of the time, which I love. I really, that excites me more than anything because I also am kind of sitting at this space where I see a lot of companies coming in mm -hmm. and they're trying to find their product market fit and maybe they're pivoting a few times and they're uh, seeing in the MLOps community what works and what doesn't or what people are actually having pain with around and what they aren't. But the question that I have for you is, what is something that is very popular that you disagree with? Hmm. What is something that's very popular that I disagree with? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah, I think, I think, I, yeah, take your time. Because I, I think I wrote this one. Did I write this one, Demetrius? I think I did, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I wrote this one. And I, was, I think the idea is just like to kind of expand on it and give you some time to think it through. Um, you know, in investing in company formation and in just in general, we're driven so often by like trends and, and what's hot and what's interesting and what everybody seems to know. Um, but it's those like narrative violations sometimes like what DBT did, right. That mm -hmm. are, are sometimes some of the most interesting um, and that give you a lot of inspiration in terms of like, Hey, is what I believe about the world to be true, but whether it's about data or something else actually mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of mm -hmm. what, you know, whether it's a suspicion you've been having or whether it's a feeling or whether it's a well thought out thesis, would love to know how you're thinking about that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think this will come as no surprise to like technical folks on on this podcast listeners, because um, as I mentioned, you know, as an engineer myself, I definitely have a very specific sort of view of the world. And um, one thing that's very, very much in fashion these days is is no code. And. Um, as an investor and an engineer, I've had to sort of come to grips with, well, what's my personal view and thesis on this space? And do I believe that data systems and data access and collaboration needs to be democratized to lower common denominator, like less technical users? Absolutely, I believe that um, without a question. But do I go so far as believing that there's a, there's a no-code manifestation of every data engineering or ML workflow? Out there, well, not not quite, and so I think the the place that I've come to is um, embracing the democratization, you know, to the extent that I believe it's likely, but at the same time, sort of having outs for um, engineers or more technical people to sort of muddle in the the workflows or the decisions that that system is making, and so I guess um, you know I'm much more of a low code believer than a no code believer, and there's many tools that I've looked at where because they don't sort of give that engineer the out or a more technical user an API to sort of, you know, manipulate the logic that that tool is sort of generating on the fly, um, you know, I, I tend to pass on those ideas because I don't believe in, in no code to that extent. Um, so I think that's one that, you know, I've had to sort of pick and choose like my entry point um, because to be honest, maybe not an engineering community, but no code is very, very sexy right now in terms of, other types of styles of venture investing and, and theses that are being generated, I would say. I am deeply skeptical of no code as well. And I think that's a great point that you brought up. 
it's particularly hot in the data space because mm. data is so central to the operations of an organization that it seems like an easy target to say, hey, if we just let anybody do this, it would probably be a lot faster and a lot more valuable across the organization. But the problem is, is that code as an artifact brings with it certain, certain value propositions, versioning, a clear expression of logic, a clear sort of statement of assumptions and ability to test that is very rarely included as a part of no code solutions. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes people start with the idea that, hey, this commonly burdensome process should become no code. But they don't think about why, it's, in my opinion, it's in sufficient depth about why that process is burdensome, why it's still being done that way, and what implications not having it as code would really have you know, um, on the way that task gets done. I, I see this a lot actually right now, um, you know, to some extent in the healthcare data world where uh, there's a lot of complexity that it might seem like it's easy to abstract away, like say, hey, a doctor should just be able to do certain things because they have the clinical knowledge, why do we want a data scientist or a data engineer as an intermediary, right? Um, there's enough domain, ex we wanna empower domain expertise without the technical requirements of the engineer or the analyst. But I find many of those tools to have like a, a missing connect and you know, maybe we'll see you know, um, a much better you know, move forward with things like retool and, and airplane that are, that are changing the way at least visualizations on top of data are done, but uh, I, I agree with you. It's a long way of saying that. Yeah, I think there's one one further extrapolation of this too, which is that um, it's not just that we as engineers sort of believe that no code won't achieve its you know utopian vision. It's that we understand that it's more than just dropping a Python interpreter in a Excel spreadsheet, right? How many of those businesses have we seen mm. these days, right? Mm. Everyone wants to mm -hmm. create a Python-enabled Google Sheets. Like that, that's the, like that's the perfect fusion of like no code and low code, right? Yeah. Like we can, we can yeah. have it both ways. Well, how does that break down a million ways? Because there's no, there's no possible software engineering best practices that can apply to you like writing some hundred line macro and dropping it in an, in an Excel, um, you know, um, cell. So I think that, you know, again, we want to democratize access and Maybe a lot of us believe that the, the world, you know, needs to learn SQL as sort of a common meeting place for us all to, to join. Of course, I received applause when I scarcely brought that up at Data Council last week because everyone in our community believes that. <laughs> but it's more than that, yeah, right? We also absolutely. have to sort of understand that so we've learned a lot about software engineering in the last 40 years. And as we mentioned before, a lot of these things have to be sort of enforced and applied to data to make sense and to make collaboration meaningful and not just spaghetti messes of, you know, um, spider messes of spaghetti code. So I think there's a few different things that go on here and just removing all the code out of the picture or even just adding a Python interpreter, um, you know, into a, into a spreadsheet, like, isn't the solution either. So I think there's a lot more nuance to it than, than the way some of, some of us um, tend to frame it, perhaps. And I completely, oh, go ahead, Demetrius. Completely so disagree. We... <laughs> he was going to say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. So before we wrap, I know that you you recently raised a fund and then you raised another fund and I'm super excited for you and I love the vision that you have on it. Hypothetically, if one wanted to do that, like perhaps Vishnu, mm -hmm. um, 
<laughs> yeah. How do you do that? What does that even how do you, entail? How do you do that? How do you do that? Uh, um, well, I started, I started on AngelList. Um, I mean, I started with our community first and I, I found companies that um, wanted my help. You know, it, it took me a while to realize as a, maybe not surprisingly, but as a four-time founder of engineering tools, I had a lot to say to other engineers building other engineering tools. And as I sort of grew in that confidence and started to um, partner with with folks in the data council community to help them, and then I figured out, wow, they're willing to like, you know, give me a little equity grant and there's actually value there. And sort of that, that grew up into angel investing. And, but basically sort of the, you know, that, that was the, the early days of the path. I think the big hurdle was when I started to pool other people's money together on AngelList, other engineers and founders in our community who wanted to help me invest in another company in the community. So it became this very sort of virtuous flywheel effect. And, you know, in my case, AngelList was a super helpful platform that, that made all that happen. So to other engineers who want to become angel investors or explore that, I'm, you know, my, my door is always open and I'm happy to chat with folks about that because it's been a very exciting way for me to discover how to support other engineers at scale, which obviously is what makes me tick. Super cool. And I want to thank you so much for giving us a free ticket, giving the MLOps community a free ticket to the Data Council event. That's great. That was super kind of you. You also gave us some discount codes, which I can't thank you enough. I know that the person that won the free ticket had a great time and absolutely great. loved it. Amazing. So uh, thanks excited. again. And then if anyone has a company that they're starting and potentially wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to find you? I have office hours um, every week for founders in your community and our community sort of across the data world um, who want to chat about early stage ideas. I'll send you my Calendly link if they simply Perfect. send out an email, pete.datacouncil.ai, um, or they can find me Pete Soder, P-E-T-S-O-D-E-R on Twitter. Excellent. Yeah, we'll throw all the links for all that good stuff below. Thank you so much, Pete. This has been awesome. Thank you guys for the, the inspiring conversation. It's been fun to talk to you.